0: We continue our sermon series in Exodus, Exodus chapter 2. Uh, if you're joining us online, want will read the screen likewise here. Or you can, in your app, you can uh, find the scripture printed on the sermon guide there as well. Exodus chapter 2. Now, a man from the house of Levi, went and took that to his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dotted it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down the bay to the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent for servant certain woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child in the hole, and the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew's children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse for the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought in to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian being a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and gave him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over? Him? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he thought to kill Moses. But Moses left for Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Then down in verse twenty-three, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Years ago in Ethiopia a 12-year-old girl's world in the nightmare. Seven men abducted her, took her away, intending to force her into marriage. For seven days, they beat her repeatedly. That's a fairly common practice in Ethiopia, where men will band together and abduct a girl, seeking to force them into marriage. And typically, they tend into submission. In this particular instance, there weren't any human beings that were close enough to hear her cries for help. I want you to think about your life for a moment. I want you to think about maybe that time where you cried for help, and maybe no one's heard your cry for help. That's the situation that God's people find themselves in. They're in slavery. They're being beaten into submission. And they're crying out for help. And no one seems to be hearing this cry because the one man who had been helping them, Joseph, the man who was in power in Egypt, the one who knew them, loved them, protected them, was for them, had died. And so there was seemingly no one to hear their cry for help. But then we read verse 23. They groaned, they cried out, and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Verses 24 and 25. God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. God heard their cries. God saw their miserable slavery, and God remembered. That doesn't mean that he had forgotten them, or that he had amnesia, and suddenly he remembered again. No, when that word appears in the Scriptures as an action on God's part, it means that he acted. And that God took action. Well, so how did he act? How does God at how does God respond to your cry for help? First, He responds with a powerful salvation. A powerful salvation. The first 10 verses of chapter 2 are a long narrative of God's mighty hand in action. Consider the details. Consider the details. Moses' mother bore a son under a death sentence. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had ordered that every Hebrew son be cast into the Nile. Now imagine as verse 2 talks about those first three months of Moses' life. Imagine that the anxiety and the fear that was gripping her. Every time a little baby Moses was hungry. Every time a little baby Moses needs his diaper changed, what do kids do when they need that? They cry. They cry loudly. And I imagine every time little Moses cried loudly, his mother just was stressed. This is an Egyptian official going to right hear this? Is there an Egyptian who's going to walk by and hear this cry and rip this child out of my arms and toss him in the night. After three months, she. Decided she couldn't do any longer, so she put him in, in a basket and floated him down the river. God's plan for triumphing over evil was floating in a makeshift basket down the Nile River. And not only that, but little baby Moses is delivered under the doorstep of Pharaoh, the one who had ordered his execution. But Pharaoh's daughter is down by the river, shows kindness to the baby, and not only that, pays the one woman in, in all the world that cared about the little baby the most, his mother, to nurse him and to raise him for several years, after which. Moses would be given back to Pharaoh's daughter and she would adopt him. Now, if you were sitting down across the table from someone and coming up with a plan for rescuing God's people, and you had put you had this out as a plan, that person would have thought you were crazy. Absolutely crazy. In the same way that the Joseph story in Genesis, which is a prequel to this story, would have felt the same way. Salvation is anchored in God's sovereignty. It is his work from beginning to end. It belongs to him. He is working out the Israelite salvation, and they aren't even aware of it in this birthmary of those. Not even aware of it. Verse 23: During those many days. Many days. If you've been in a season of suffering or pain, it feels like the days never come to an end. During those many days, God's people were crying out and groaning. God heard, God saw, God knew. Do you know how many years transpire in Exodus chapter 2? And I just read the chapter. Acts 7.23 tells us that 40 years that elapsed between Moses' birth and him murdering the Egyptian and going into the wilderness. How long was he in the wilderness? Acts 7.30 tells us another 40 years past from between when Moses went into the wilderness and when he was called by God from the burning bush. That is 80 years of God's people Crying out and groaning in their slavery. God was working on their salvation. Even when they didn't realize it, and so it is with your salvation. Your salvation was planned, accomplished far before, long before you ever experienced it through faith and repentance. God is sovereign in salvation. How? How do we see this play out? Well, he's sovereign in salvation, but his salvation is also anchored in his renewal. The entire Bible is one story of salvation. Look at verse 3. When she, Moses' mother, could hide it no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, it with the pitch and the The Hebrew word near, the language of the Old Testament was written in originally, the even word for basket is used one other time in the entire Old Testament. And that's in Genesis 6 in the front story of the building, where there it is translated ark. So Moses' mother put little Moses in a tiny ark that floated down the river. The author uses this word with great intentionality because he is drawing strong parallels, purposeful parallels, between the Noah flood story and this story with Moses. Right? Both Noah and Moses were placed in an ark, treated the bitumen, both were carried to safety on the very body of water. It was destruction for others. And we'll see that when Moses does get God's people out and out the Red Sea and they cross the Red Sea, we see the same dynamic. The waters of the Red Sea that were destruction for the Egyptians were the same waters through which God's people were seen. So you see death and rebirth, you see judgment and salvation. Pointing. To the waters of baptism, but right? because the vehicle of Noah's ark, the vehicle that Moses rode in, the little ark, all culminate in the person of Jesus—the one who shields us from judgment and carries us safely into new life. The waters of baptism represent both. they represent the judgment that Jesus took on our behalf. He took the waters of judgment in the Noah story. He took the Red three waters of judgment in the salvation story as Israel passed through so that in both places a new people could be rebirthed. Birth in the new life. Death of the old, birth of the new. Salvation is not just being saved from the penalty of sin, it's being birthed into a brand new life, new creation. God's powerful for salvation is anchored in his sovereignty. It's anger and renewal. Second, though, how does God respond to your cry for help? It's with a powerful salvation. And second, it's with a compassionate salvation. A compassionate salvation. Look at verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. What does that mean? Was Moses on news, just daily troll? checking on the past, master, second on the planes. You now, something was happening here. Something's being birthed in Moses. When it says he went out, that verb is the same verb that's used to describe the exodus. If Moses had to go out of Egypt, emotionally, if not death. He had to go out. And then we read in Hebrews 11 24 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the free pleasures of sin. Moses had it all in Egypt. He had ease, he had comfort, he had luxury, he had pleasure. He had the highest earthly honors. Moses had it all. And he chose to leave that to live in poverty and oppression with God's people. What a beautiful picture of the greater Moses to had come, of Jesus Christ, who left the glory of heaven to enter into this broken, oppressed, and dark world. But when Jesus stepped into this world, he didn't just step in and then remain at a distance. He didn't step in and just kind of oversee what was happening. Back to verse 11 again. It says Moses went out to the people and looked on their burden. That word, "looked on, it means more than just to look and to see. It means to look on with emotion. It means to look on with compassion, to feel with it. That Moses saw the burden of his people and then he took that burden on himself. Again, a beautiful picture of the greater Moses to come, of our Savior Jesus Christ. Matthew 9.36 describes it this way The Christ. When he saw the crowd, when he looked out and he saw the crowd, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. That original word, compassion, is a remarkable word. Because in the original language of the New Testament, which is Greek, that word for compassion doesn't appear in classic Greek. The Gospel writers, Matthew and others, couldn't find a word in the Greek language that described what they saw in Jesus Christ. So they made one. Charles Spurgeon described this word, compassion, this way. Of Jesus, it is expressive of the deepest emotion—a striving of the bowels, a yearning of the inmost nature with pity. And then he goes on to say this: I suppose that when our Savior looked upon certain sights, those who watched him closely perceived that his internal agitation was very great. His emotions were very deep, and then his face betrayed it. His eyes gushed like founts with tears, and you saw that his big heart was ready to burst with pity for the sorrow upon which his eyes were gazing. Jesus Christ was moved with compassion. Jesus identified with your pain. He identifies with your struggle. Your burdens become his burdens. He responds to your cry for help as a compassionate salvation. NPR read a story on a father in San Diego for the story's purposes they named him Frank. And Frank was concerned that his son, homeless heroin addict that he knew it was somewhere in Denver, Colorado, was going to die. And so Frank reached out to a man by the name Chris Connors who runs a, a, he's a leading homeless advocate in Denver. And Chris Connors said over the years he's matched parents up with lost children, but this one was very different. He said this, I've never had a parent who necessarily went this far to descend into the homelessness themselves. Connor connected Frank with a Denver pastor, whose church ran a food ministry. They passed out lunch at a Denver park across from the state capitol. And Frank got word, understood, that his son was somewhere in that community, in that mix. Listen to how Frank describes the community of his son on the street. He has no idea that I'm walking towards him. I can see that he can't stand up without the support of a building. He would appear drunk to most people. To his dad, though, I know from past experience, sadly, he's on the Heavy terrible. I go up to him and he starts to turn his back on me. I don't even care. I just grab him and squeeze him as far as I can. For a week, Frank became his son's chap. By day, he would go around in bed with him. At night, he would sleep on the riverbank with him. He grew a beard. He gave handouts, and by day, he squatted back away by night. And during this time, his son went in and out of the hospital, continued to steal for drug money, and at one point, Frank told his son that. If you die, your mom and dad die with you. We might still be here breathing, but make no mistake, we'll be dead inside. That's in That's identifying. That's a father entering in and identifying the son of Satan. The reality is we're all homeless. Now, you may have a house, or an apartment, or a dorm, where you lay your head down. But like the Israelites, we are all suffering under the oppression and slavery of sin, looking for some place of rest, some place of healing, some place of shelter. Jesus Christ became homeless. He became homeless and entered into your pain, the pain of this world. He took it upon himself. He identified with you in your pain and meets you there. So when you run from your pain, or when you fail to breathe, or when you cut off negative emotions, you are running from the very place where Jesus Christ leads you. Now, many of you might say, I, I don't run from pain. I don't run from pain. I don't cut off negative emotions. But I would, I'll throw myself in the circle. We're not very aware sometimes of how we run from pain. And that's because there are more socially acceptable pain relievers in our world. The obvious pain relievers are drugs, alcohol, those are obvious. Ways that you can run from your pain. Know yourself, it. Get away from those negative emotions. But there are less obvious pain relievers. Success, being one. Success is a great temporary pain reliever. Productivity. Productivity is a great temporary pain reliever. But so when we engage those things as a means to run from our pain, to avoid grieving, to cut off negative emotions, our hearts become hard. And the reason they become hard is because we are functionally running from Jesus. We're running from the very place that he meets us, which is right in our pain. And there is where he softens our heart. And then what happens is wounded people, people. But wounded people that run from their pain, wounded people that don't grieve, then run from others' pain and cut off others' negative emotions and don't enter in. And you know that if you have a loved one that doesn't enter in with your pain, that is incredibly hurtful. It's hurtful. Wounded people wounded. people. Jesus Christ in this world. And took on your pain to meet you in your pain. So don't run from it. Don't run from the place where you will meet Jesus. And find his grace, and find his forgiveness, and find his healing. How does God respond? Jesus cried for help. He responds with a powerful salvation, a compassionate salvation, and finally with a gracious salvation. Look at verses 11 to 12. He, Moses, saw an Egyptian being a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. One way to understand this verse is that Moses would see what happened, he looked both ways, and seeing no one, meaning no one was around to catch him when he did this, or no one was there to stop him, he went on and learned the Egyptians and the Hebrew. But there's another way to see this, another way to interpret seeing no one. And that is that when Moses went out and saw this, he looked around and seeing no one, meaning that he saw no one coming to save the Hebrew life. No one to defend him, so Moses stepped in himself to save the Hebrew life. This is how seeing no one unfolds in Isaiah 59, 16 when it says the Lord saw that there was no man and wondered that there was, there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. Speaking of, of Jesus. What happened here is Moses took matters in his own hands. Moses took matters in his own hands. It wouldn't be until 40 years later that God would call Moses from the burning bush. He hadn't been called yet. And so he stepped in and tried to accomplish salvation by his own works, not by the grace and power of God. And salvation only comes through the power of God. Acts chapter 7, verses 24 and 27, give a glimpse of what was going on in Joseph's heart when he saw this Egyptian being a was slave. And seeing one of them be wrong, Moses defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Here it is. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. it. And it says the following day when he saw two Hebrews fighting, what did they say? They said, Who made you a, a ruler, a prince, or a judge over us? And their question is, Moses hadn't been called yet. God hadn't called him yet. He was seeking salvation by works by no own hand in his own timing. Salvation does not come by the works of any person. Salvation comes through the power of God, by the power of God alone. And it's through grace alone. For one author put it this way Moses was 40 years in Egypt learning something. He was 40 years in the desert learning to be nothing. And he was 40 years in the wilderness proving God to be heaven. When it comes to salvation, good works don't work. The Apostle Paul takes this up in Philippians 3 when before Christ he's describing this amazing religious trophy cake he had. And he describes that after reading Christ, he looks at that trophy cake and he counts it as rubbish or garbage. His religious assets became spiritual idol. His good works became spiritual liabilities. Salvation is by grace alone. You don't complete your salvation, you don't accomplish it. You receive a finished and accomplish salvation by turning to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. Why is it so important? Because when you functionally understand that salvation is by grace alone, then you lead others with grace. And you don't fall into the behavior of Moses before he's called. Right? Which was to self-appoint himself as a Savior, a Messiah, to attempt God's salvation on his own. When you fall into that trap. When you fall away from grace and you fall into work, you not only wound yourself and are hard on yourself, but you start to wound others and you start to be harsh on others. But when you understand that your salvation was given to you, completed and finished as a gift, it leads you to be gracious with others. Motivation is important. Those has have the right motivation, but method is important. God's salvation comes at His time his way. Comes through his power room. That twelve-year-old detailed year girl had been abducted for seven days being beaten. Crying out for help, there were no human beings within earshot to hear her cries. But her cries were heard. Three large lines leapt out of the bush and chased her captors away. And this 12 year old girl went from one danger to thinking now she's in another danger. But what happened was remarkable. Those large three lions just formed a, per- a protective perimeter around her. And a half a day later, when police arrived and found her as they approached the city, the lions got up and walked away. The the sergeant who came on the scene said it this way. They stood guard until we found her. And then they just left her like a gift and went back into the forest. This 12-year-old girl was helpless. She was powerless to save herself. Her deliverance came from a power outside of herself. And so is with you. You are helpless, you are powerless to save yourself from the oppression and slavery of sin. Your only hope is to cry out to God, a God who sees, hears, knows, acts, and has acted by sending Jesus Christ. Who the scriptures call the Lion of Jesus. To rescue you, to protect you, to save you. Turn to remain, Trust him. Let's pray. Father, your salvation is amazing. We can confess, Father, that. You have been working on our salvation from eternity past. But the entire story of the Bible is one story of salvation that you accomplished on the cross in your son Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. Father, would you remind us that salvation is completely of your grace, not of our doing. Father, thank you for not only entering this world, but in the person of Christ taking out of our pain and meeting us in it. Father, I pray for those here that are that viewing online that maybe have been running from their pain, running from a past, refusing to grieve, cutting off negative emotions. Father, would you draw them back to that place of pain where they will meet you, Jesus, without open you having taken their burdens upon yourself and meeting them there, and would you, in that place, proclaim your forgiveness and your healing and your new life that comes with your salvation? Father, before and worship now, would you help us to sing loudly in our hearts, of that salvation, that is such an amazing gift. We praise it in Jesus' name. Amen.